day of all others in the year most congenial to proclaiming peace on earth and goodwill to men. John Quincy Adams, December 25th, 1814. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 8, Christmas 1814 There were 10 Christmases during the second decade, 12 I suppose if you count 1809 and 1820 as being part of it, which generally I have been. Of these dozen Yules, one stands head and shoulders above the rest, not only in historical significance, but in the spirit of Christmas itself. That was the holiday season of 1814. Peace on Earth, Goodwill Toward Men is a slogan that roll off the tongue no less casually in the second decade of the 19th century than it does in the second decade of the 21st. But in 1814, for the first time in a very long time, the world was mostly at peace after a long, long period of essentially global war. In fact, an important bit of peace was actually made on Christmas Eve 1814, the peace at Ghent, Belgium, which ended the War of 1812 between Great Britain and the United States. I'll talk about that in the second half of the episode. But peace had already had a banner year by the time John Quincy Adams put Quill to paper that Christmas Eve. The Napoleonic and French Revolutionary Wars, which had been raging off and on with only a few short breaks since 1792, were mostly over. There was still to come what historians call the Hundred Days, Napoleon's temporary return to power in 1815, which ended at the Battle of Waterloo. But at Christmas of the previous year, Napoleon was imprisoned on the island of Elba, and peace was returning to the world. It came at a price. A lot of people, 6.5 million by some estimates, had been killed since 1803, and the toll was higher if you count the French Revolutionary Wars that happened before Napoleon came to power. Entire countries were devastated. Farms and crops were ruined, families split apart. But in 1814, throughout most of the world, the cannons finally fell silent. Christmas 1814 was the first holiday of peace in a long time. This is the story of that Christmas season, how people celebrated it, what their customs were like, some things that happened that year, and finally, the story of the Christmas Eve peace. Join me now as we travel back 202 years to a Christmas long ago, but not quite forgotten.
first things first, some words about this podcast itself. This is a significant episode for Second Decade for two reasons. First, it's obviously a Christmas special, but it's fortunate that I can do a holiday special on this show and still remain on topic. A lot of podcasts can't. Secondly, this is the eighth episode of Second Decade, and that's something of an unofficial milestone. I read a while ago, not sure exactly where, that most podcasts don't progress beyond seven episodes. So if you get to episode number eight, you're already ahead of most of them. Who knows if that's true, but it certainly sounds good, so I'll go ahead and congratulate myself on making it this far. Finally, because of the holiday season, there is going to be a gap between this episode, number eight, and the next one. I'm going to take at least a week off, perhaps two, to celebrate the holidays with my family, but I will be back on a regular schedule in January 2017. Thank you to everyone who's made this podcast a success over the past eight weeks. Interest in the show continues to build, and that's very gratifying. Special shout out to the group Just History Podcasts on Facebook. Many of them are big fans of Second Decade, so thanks. And thanks heaps to my Patreon supporters, a small but loyal following. More info on my Patreon at the end of the show. So now, Christmas. The first thing we have to do in setting the stage is to get a sense of what Christmas was like in the Second Decade. Holidays and their observances are far from static in history. Way back in episode 1, I talked about what the 4th of July was like for Americans in 1816, and it was very different than it is today. The same is true of Christmas, both for Americans and Europeans. Our usual Christmas traditions, trees with lots of lights, shopping at the mall, eggnog, ugly sweaters, that movie with the leg lamp, arguing with, over dinner with your racist uncle, none of that existed in the 18-teens. That shouldn't surprise you. What may surprise you is that Christmas is a much bigger deal to us in the 21st century than it was in the early 19th. People celebrated Christmas, sure, but it wasn't the most prominent holiday. In Europe, New Year's and Easter tended to be a bigger deal. In the new United States, 4th of July and Thanksgiving were the big holidays. But people did celebrate Christmas, usually by eating a lot and drinking to excess. We see, looking into the 18-teens, a lot of the forerunners of the traditions that we have today, but they weren't fully developed yet, at least not in the way we see them now. Take, for example, the Christmas tree. We could go around and around about the history of this symbol, which is religiously, culturally, even politically charged, and has been for a long time. The origins of the tradition seem to stretch back to Roman times. The Romans apparently decorated their homes with evergreen wreaths during the winter festival of Saturnalia, traditionally held December 17th. In medieval times, the idea of a Christmas tree caught on in various countries, but most notably in Germany, where the tradition was largely confined for many centuries. Recently, I saw the classic film Lion in Winter, maybe you've seen that, starring Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. It takes place in France around Christmas of the year 1183, based on the famous play. I had to laugh because the film shows not only a Christmas tree, but at one point Catherine Hepburn is wrapping presents to put under it. Uh, no. Major anachronism. The film was made in 1968, by the way. However, the second decade, and especially Christmas 1814, did a lot to bring the quaint Germanic custom into a lot of homes all over the Western world. That year and that Christmas saw a particularly big party with a cosmopolitan guest list, in fact the biggest party in the world for a number of years. It happened in the city of Vienna, and it has to do with Napoleon. 
Nine months before the holidays, in March 1814, Napoleon was finally losing the cycle of wars in which he'd blocked Europe for many years. That month, representatives of France's chief military enemies, Great Britain, Russia, the Kingdom of Prussia, and Austria, met in the little town of Chaumont in northern France to issue final terms to Napoleon on which he could have peace. He rejected them, of course, but the Treaty of Chaumont was an important step toward what would happen that fall. In the late summer of 1814, after what everyone thought was Napoleon's final defeat, European diplomats began gathering in Vienna for a confab that they hoped would settle all the diplomatic and political business of Europe left by the wars, and most importantly, figure out how to prevent France from becoming a problem again. This meeting officially came to order in November, and it was called the Congress of Vienna. I'm going to do a dedicated episode on the Congress of Vienna, probably more than one, so the political ins and outs won't concern us now. What does concern us is that as the biggest gathering of crown heads and political hacks in European history up until that time, it was an excuse for a huge party. There were balls, there were soirees, there were dances, there were dinner parties, there were receptions, there were gentlemanly gulps of brandy in candlelit parlors in the Hofburg Palace, and then there were drunken ragers in brothels in the back streets of Vienna. The amount of drinking that went on at the Congress of Vienna was staggering. Staggering. People, especially rich people, drank a lot of alcohol in the early 19th century. Drinking habits that we wouldn't hesitate to label rock-bottom alcoholism today were totally normal in the second decade. And they ate a lot, too. At one dinner party at the Congress, thrown by Emperor Franz II of Austria at the Hofburg Palace, the delegates and their guests wolfed down 300 hams, 200 pigeons, 200 partridges, 150 pheasants, 60 rabbits, 20 turkeys, and even a roast boar on a skewer. That's one party. The Austrian government was still paying bills for Congress of Vienna-related parties decades later. The Congress lasted until June, so Christmas, coming in the second month of the proceedings, was an early excuse to lay it on thick. It was also sort of a cultural exchange, at least among Europeans. You had diplomats, their families, and staff coming from all over Europe, and it was a unique opportunity for people to be exposed to different customs and traditions that they might not otherwise have experienced. One influential member of Viennese society was a couple named Nathan and Fanny von Arnstein. Nathan was a prominent banker, and Fanny, true name Franziska, was originally from Berlin. When they built their posh home, the Palais Arnstein, just outside of Vienna in 1794, Fanny began to introduce a number of Berlin customs to Austrian society, much of which found itself in the Arnstein's parlor at one time or another. In fact, the parlor itself was one of these traditions. It was a salon, meaning a gathering place where intellectual ideas could be discussed and freely exchanged among learned men and women. The intellectual and cultural tradition of the salon was then unknown in Vienna, so the Arnsteins got credit for starting something new. In 1814, with so much of European society in town, Fanny really got her chance to shine. Just before Christmas, she threw a lavish party at which many of the diplomats were in attendance. As they walked into the salon, they beheld a magnificent sight, a huge fir tree, lavishly decorated and with the Berlin custom of candles on the branches. This was the first time many of the diplomats, especially the French and British, had ever seen a German-style Christmas tree. 
Never mind what a tremendous fire hazard it is to put lit candles on a Christmas tree. I don't care how much water you have in the bucket underneath, it's still a bad idea. But then again, just about everything was a fire hazard in 1814. The guests at Fanny von Arnstein's were charmed by the tree. Not long after, a Berlin-style Christmas tree appeared at the French embassy. By 1816, Berlin-style trees were popping up, and occasionally bursting into flame, all over Europe. The Christmas tree didn't truly become ubiquitous for a couple more decades. They didn't catch on in England, for instance, until Queen Victoria's German husband, Albert, introduced them at court in the 1840s. But Fanny von Arnstein certainly helped bring the tradition to a lot more people. The irony of this, Fanny and Nathan von Arnstein were Jewish. Two of Vienna's most prominent Jews helped invent a Christmas tradition. Try that one out on your aforementioned uncle when he rants on about the so-called War on Christmas. Let's shift gears now and change geographic locations, from Vienna to London. A great deal of what we think of as classic Christmas lore comes to us from the old Christmases of England, though a lot of it is from the Victorian era, thanks to Charles Dickens, who was only two years old in 1814. But the sights and tropes you might see in a modern movie production of A Christmas Carol, which takes place in the early 1840s, look remarkably similar to Christmas traditions as they existed in the second decade. Bell ringers, carolers, women in long dresses with fur-lined muffs, men in snow-dusted beaver hats. You're picturing the scene, I know you are. We last visited London in wintertime in episode 4, when I talked about the last frost fair on the Thames. That was in February 1814. You may remember from that episode that I talked about how London had a bit of a dark side. Yes, we've got all those lovely images of Victorian or pre-Victorian Christmas, but just like the 1840s London of Dickens' Christmas Carol, there were still plenty of ruffians, scalawags, and destitute people teeming in the old city, many of them immigrants, and in many cases their situations were even more desperate in cold weather. Christmas, therefore, provided a business opportunity for some of these people, specifically the tradition of caroling. Today we take caroling for granted as a sort of public utility. Groups of nice people in ugly sweaters and fuzzy earmuffs, many of them from local churches, go around neighborhoods ringing doorbells and singing Christmas songs. It wasn't like that in London in 1814. Carolers who went through the streets expected payment for their services, and there was no guarantee that they were on key or even competent singers. In London at Christmas time 1814, you could find plenty of people dressed in rags going around solo, not in a well-rehearsed chorus, singing bad off-key renditions of songs like I Saw Three Ships, and if you, as someone with a spare couple of pence in your pocket, if you were in earshot, the caroler might well shake you down for the payment. Beyond caroling, Christmas in London during the second decade centered largely around food, much as it does for us 200 years later. You may recall in Dickens' Christmas Carol, there's a scene where the ghost of Christmas present takes Ebenezer Scrooge on a tour of the London markets on Christmas morning. Again, that was the 1840s, but it wasn't much different in 1814. Here's a contemporary account of London on Christmas Eve. Quote, The abundant displays of every kind of edible in the London markets on Christmas Eve, with a view to the twelve days festival of, what is, of which it is the overture, the blaze of lights amid which they are exhibited, and the evergreen decorations by which they are embowered, together with the crowds of idlers or purchasers that wander through these well-stored magazines, present a picture of abundance and a congress of faces well worthy of a single visit from a stranger, 
to whom a London market on the eve of Christmas is, as yet, a novelty. End quote. In the days before Christmas 1814, turkeys, geese, all kinds of fowl started appearing in the butcher shops. At Smithfield, a famous meat market that had been operating in London since the 10th century, overfed cattle were paraded before prospective buyers. Everyone was stocking up for the big Christmas feasts, and as you remember this was the first Christmas of peace for a long time, the feasts were bound to be especially lavish. There was one kind of Christmas food popular in London called brawn, B-R-A-W-N. I'd never heard of it before, but here's a contemporary account. Quote, It is manufactured from the flesh of large boars, which are suffered to live in a half-wild state, and, when put up to fatten, are strapped and belted tight round the principal parts of the carcass, in order to make the flesh become dense and brawny. This article comes to market in rolls about two feet long and ten inches in diameter, packed in wicker baskets. End quote. Along with eating on Christmas, of course, there's drinking. It wasn't just the foreign diplomats and their mistresses guzzling hooch in the salons at the Congress of Vienna. A favorite Christmas Eve tradition in England was the wassail bowl. If you're rich, your wassail bowl, which you serve to your guests on Christmas Eve, contains wine, spiced and sweetened, with roasted apples floating in it. And if you're not rich, malt liquor will do in a pinch, but it's still gotta have those roasted apples. There were sometimes games associated with holiday drinking. One was a game called Snapdragon. Now this is horrifying. A source in 1813 states that you play Snapdragon by setting a bowl of brandy on fire. People throw raisins into the bowl, and others fish them out and eat them while they're still on fire. Supposedly the flames go out as soon as you eat them. You'd hope. The Yule Log was another Christmas Eve tradition. In England, this usually consisted of the root of a large tree, something that would burn hot but slowly for a couple of hours, long enough for you and your guests to get utterly trashed, drinking from the wassail bowl. If you couldn't find a big root, it was said that a large chunk of coal would do. And, of course, the food. Most of the heavy eating was done on Christmas Day. In London, a Christmas favorite was plum pudding. This is depicted in Dickens and the main course was usually a fowl of some kind. Turkeys and geese of up to 25 pounds apiece weren't uncommon at rich people's tables, sometimes more than one. Rich people could afford wines. Wine shops advertised heavily at Christmas. I found an advertisement from a London newspaper just a few days before Christmas 1814 for Madeira wines. That's a varietal that comes from Portugal. It was very popular among the English of that era. The English tended to prefer fortified wines, unlike the French. Madeira, direct from the island, was advertised at 36 shillings a bottle. Southampton Port, 45 shillings. A shop called the Wine Emporium boasted that they would deliver to any part of London, presumably in time for Christmas dinner. I've been talking mostly about London and English Christmases, but Americans could get in on the act too. Here's a Christmas dinner menu from one very wealthy Virginia plantation. Not specifically 1814, but the same general era. You ready? Onion soup, oysters on the half shell, broiled salt roe herring, boiled rockfish, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, mutton chops, roast suckling pig, roast turkey with chestnut stuffing, round of cold boiled beef with horseradish sauce, cold baked Virginia ham, lima beans, baked acorn squash, baked celery with slivered almonds, hominy pudding, candied sweet potatoes, cantaloupe pickle, 
Spice peaches and brandy, spiced cranberries, mincemeat pie, apple pie, cherry pie, chest tarts, blanc mange, what the hell is that? Plums and wine jelly, snowballs, Indian pudding, great cake, ice cream, plum pudding, fruits, nuts, raisins, port, and of course, Madeira. And you thought your family eats too much at Christmas. I've talked a lot about celebration and merriment, but there was some serious business happening on Christmas Eve 1814, some of the most serious business involving war and peace. While people were busy in London wassailing and sucking hot raisins from a bowl of flaming brandy, across the channel in the city of Ghent, Belgium, three Britons and five Americans were engaged in the climactic phase of a pretty epic round of diplomacy, one that they hoped would end the last of the wars that was still raging in the Western world following Napoleon's defeat, this being what we call the War of 1812. This was a business that had been going on for several months before Christmas. In fact, it started back in the summer. If you think about it, there wasn't much excuse for the War of 1812 dragging on as long as it did. You've heard me talk in this series before about the issue of impressment, the practice the British had of kidnapping Americans on the high seas and forcing them to serve board British ships engaged in the Napoleonic Wars. There were various other issues between the U.S. and Britain, many involving the frontier and relations with Native Americans, but impressment was the big one. Ironically, by the time the U.S. declared war in June 1812, just days before, the British government had suspended the Orders in Council, which established the regime of economic warfare against the United States, including impressment. But word hadn't reached America yet. So the war should have been over before it began, right? Well, not so much. For a number of reasons that take too long to go into here, politicians on both sides of the Atlantic played a sort of waiting game to see if military or political developments would give them an advantage, if and when they eventually went to the peace table. During this waiting game, a lot happened, from Napoleon's invasion of Russia to the British sailing up the Potomac and burning Washington, D.C. After Napoleon abdicated as French emperor in April 1814, the British decided they wanted to talk peace after all, and without Napoleon to worry about, they thought they could bully the Americans at the peace table and deal from a position of strength. Each side picked their negotiators. The Americans chosen by the Madison administration were the cream of the crop. At the top, you had the chrome-domed super-diplomat himself, John Quincy Adams, fresh off his success as U.S. Minister to Russia, whose dad had narrowly avoided war with France when he was president in 1800. Madison also appointed James Bayard, a moderate Federalist from Delaware, Albert Gallatin, former Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Clay, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, and a member of a group known as the War Hawks, who had pushed for the war in the first place, and Jonathan Russell, U.S. Ambassador to Sweden. These were the best diplomats the U.S. had to offer. The Brits, much to their cost, sent in a couple of second stringers, Dr. William Adams was an admiralty lawyer who the British government chose because he could argue legal positions. Then there was Lord Gambier, a naval officer, and Henry Goldborn, who was a colonial official in charge of Canada. Part of the American aims of the war was to take over Canada, which didn't go so well. You may wonder why the British didn't send their best. The simple answer is, the war with America was thought to be pretty small potatoes, and the British had what they considered much bigger fish to fry. 
Their A-list diplomats were all making arrangements for the really big party, the Congress of Vienna that I talked about earlier. Thus, the guys sent to make peace with the Americans were second stringers, pretty much by definition. The commission was supposed to meet on neutral territory. Actually, negotiations had been going on under the table for some time, mainly through the Russian government, which operated as what diplomats call good offices, a neutral and trusted third party. Adams was, at the time, minister to Russia, and he'd been in St. Petersburg since 1809. Having declined an appointment in 1812 to the U.S. Supreme Court to stay in Russia, he was finally recalled in the summer of 1814 to go do this job, to make peace with the British. The first place the peace conference was supposed to be held was in Gothenburg, Sweden. Gothenburg is pretty out of the way, even today. I've been there several times. It was even more so in 1814. When this plan was made, active fighting was still going on at various places in Europe, but Napoleon's fall and the end of most of the fighting in the spring of 1814 meant that European mainland ports were now a possibility. The Brits, who were dragging their feet sending their guys to the conference in the hopes that they could pick up some military victories in the meantime, decided to move the conference to Ghent, Belgium. Unfortunately, Adams and his team didn't get the memo in time. Having wound up his diplomatic affairs in St. Petersburg, Adams took a ship across the Baltic to Stockholm and arrived there in June 1814, only to find out that the venue had been changed to Ghent. Somewhat annoyed, he made new arrangements to get to Belgium and arrive there on June 24, 1814. Adams and the other American officials decided to stay at a hotel called, and I'm going to butcher this French pronunciation, the Hotel de Pays Bas, which was then considered the finest inn in the city of Ghent. The British ministers checked into the Hotel du Lion d'Or. Still, it was a long time before actual negotiations began. The British were once again dragging their feet. The first actual working session didn't happen until August 8th, after Adams and his people had already been there more than a month. British priorities regarding the conclusion of the American War, as they called it, kept changing. When they first organized the peace conference, the British press and public was heavily in favor of punishing the United States, which they saw as an upstart nation that had insulted Britain with its insolence during the Napoleonic Wars. The Americans hoped, now that Napoleon was out of the picture, temporarily, that other European powers might balance Britain's influence and perhaps temper her attitude toward the U.S., but that turned out not to be the case. Britain was now in a dominant position, politically, in Europe. However, the U.S. had two things in its favor. One was that Britain's political freedom of action in Europe was hampered as long as it was still at war with the United States. It was kind of this little brushfire war that was diverting attention away from what other European powers thought was more important, which was the reconstruction of Europe after the chaos that Napoleon had caused. The second was that the war for the British was very expensive. Sure, now with Napoleon defeated, they had oodles of ships and men they could divert from Europe and send to North America to crush the United States, but as a practical matter, this cost a lot of money, and it was harder than it seemed to get significant British armies on the ground in North America and to keep them supplied. Even the attack against Washington, D.C. was more of a hit-and-run raid. It wasn't like the British captured the capital and occupied it more or less permanently, which is what they would have done with a European capital fighting a war across the Atlantic in 1814 was a much different thing. So the British had to face the question, is it really worth it? This is the question that ended up being decisive. 
it seems like the biggest stumbling block of the peace negotiation should have been that issue of impressment. Although the British had officially rescinded the orders in council, which provided the legal basis for impressment, the practice was still widely carried out even after 1812. Originally, the Madison administration insisted that the American delegation not sign any treaty that didn't include the British officially denouncing this policy. However, developments in spring and summer 1814 made them quietly change their minds. The British were emboldened by their victory over Napoleon, and it seemed pretty unlikely that the United States could force them really to do anything. But the good news was that the war with Napoleon was over. Britain didn't need to go around kidnapping sailors all over the place anymore. Impressment, therefore, kind of dropped off the table. So, when the delegates first met in August 1814, the thorniest issue, impressment, was pretty much a dead issue. Adams and his team were no longer instructed to ram this issue down the Brits' throats, and the Brits had no incentive to even mention it. Convenient, yeah? It meant that they could focus on other issues which actually had a chance of being solved. The British went first in presenting their demands. They'd make peace, they said, in exchange for a couple of concessions. First, they wanted Native Americans, most of whom were fighting on the side of the British, included in the settlement, and that some kind of land be set aside for them in what's known as the Old Northwest, the area of what's now Michigan, Wisconsin, and such. The Native American lands the British hoped would be sort of a buffer zone between the U.S. and British forces. They also wanted this as a concession to the tribes in order to keep them on their side. The Brits wanted some territory in Maine and Minnesota, mainly so the British could have trading access to the Mississippi River. They wanted Americans to remove warships from the Great Lakes and take down their forts in the area. And finally, they said they weren't inclined to let American fishermen fish in Canadian waters without some equivalent concession. These demands are kind of interesting, especially the one about Native Americans, which proved the most contentious. Many Indian tribes had fought on the British side of the American Revolution, but when the peace treaty was concluded in 1783 to end that war, the Brits left their Indian allies in a lurch. They didn't do a damn thing for them. Big mistake. As the War of 1812 proved, the British weren't done fighting in North America, and it would certainly help if they had native allies. So, during the war itself, the British reassured Indian tribes on numerous occasions that it wouldn't leave them out in the cold again. Goldborn and the other British delegates pushed hard on this point. They really wanted this Indian buffer zone, or at least they made it seem that way. Adams and the Americans were shocked. They really thought the Brits were playing hardball. As it turned out, they shouldn't have been. The British position had been publicized in London newspapers for months and was totally public. Adams read Goldborn the Riot Act and said that this Indian business would not be in the treaty. No way, no how. Goldborn said after the conference, Till I came here, I had no idea of the fixed determination which there is in the heart of every American to extirpate the Indians and appropriate their territory. Unfortunately for the Native Americans, he hadn't seen anything yet, as the later 19th century would prove. For a while, through October and November, the peace talks seemed stalled. As it turned out, though, the British position suffered from one major defect. It wasn't nearly as firm as Goldborn and the delegates made it sound. In fact, it was, in the words of one historian, kind of a probing operation to see how much hardball the Americans would play. Even the British Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, upbraided his own delegates. He's quoted as saying, Our commissioners had certainly taken a very erroneous view of our policy, 
and did not understand the inconvenience of the continuance of the war. In a way, though, you can't really blame the British for holding out. There were deep divisions among the American delegates themselves, and it seems like there were serious problems behind the scenes at the hotel whatever it was. Personality clashes, for one. Adams, the guy in charge, he's a blue-blooded New England patrician. His dad was president, Quincy Adams himself married an English lady, he was brought up around books and fine wines and all that sort of thing. Henry Clay, by contrast, was a Kentucky frontier politician, a slave owner, definitely a political rival. Clay also liked to party. He would have card parties at the hotel, some of them lasting until 4 a.m. His room was right down the hall from Adams's. You could imagine some friction between them. Adams and the rest of the delegates fought over everything, especially wording of proposals to the Brits. Adams was the spokesman for the group and the one who wrote everything down, so his sessions with the other Americans were mostly them poking holes in whatever he'd written. Adams also had a notoriously short temper, so you can forgive him if he thought this was a crap assignment, however important it was to world peace. However bad he was as a housemate, or at least hotel mate, Clay was shrewd. He recognized the signs that the British were playing for time. Ultimately, the Brits decided to drop that whole Indian buffer zone thing. Instead, they demanded that Native American tribes be restored by the U.S. government to the position they'd been in before 1811, when a decisive battle called Tippecanoe that had happened in the Old Northwest led to Indian uprisings. This condition was unenforceable, and the Brits knew it, so the Americans accepted it. The next piece of spaghetti the Brits threw at the wall to see if it would stick was a suggestion called, in Latin, uti posseditis. That meant that whatever, whenever the treaty was signed, each country would keep whatever territory they held when the music stopped. What it effectively meant is that the British would keep a part of Maine and a few forts on the frontier. The Americans balked at this too. No way, no how. Perhaps Adams and Clay figured the British might cave on this. Ultimately, they were right. Indeed, the top military commander in Britain, the Duke of Wellington, who would in a couple of months kick Napoleon's butt once and for all at Waterloo, told the Prime Minister that this Usi Paditis idea was silly and that they shouldn't push for it. Moreover, the clock was ticking. By now we're talking October, November, the high-rolling A-list diplomats were deeply engaged in the mighty rager going on at the Congress of Vienna. The dog and pony show at Ghent was sapping valuable political capital from more important matters related to the big show in Vienna. Can't we get this over with? Plus, there was another time factor starting to pinch. In the early 19th century, military campaigns, especially overseas, followed the calendar. You had to launch them in the spring so you could get your fighting done over the summer before bad weather set in. If there's no peace, that meant the British would have to ramp up for another campaign season in spring and summer 1815. This would be their fourth since the war started. The bean counters in Whitehall realized that the next campaign would cost about 10 million pounds. That's about $600 million in today's money. They were going to have to raise taxes to pay for it. The British public didn't want that, especially now that peace had broken out everywhere except in America. The writing was on the wall for the Brits. Let's pull the plug and get this thing over with. On November 18, 1814, Lord Liverpool, the British Prime Minister, told his foreign secretary that they were going to drop the territorial demand. That left two issues on the table whether the British would trade on the Mississippi, and the whole thing about Americans fishing in Canadian waters. 
Amazingly, even though they were now this close to an agreement that would end the war, Adams and Clay almost managed to blow it. They disagreed on how hard they should press and which of these issues was more important. Clay, a Southerner, was adamant that there be no Brits on the Mississippi, period. Adams, a New Englander, wanted to preserve those fisheries for the Massachusetts economy. If the American delegation couldn't agree on what they wanted, the whole conference would crater. Three days before Christmas, on December 22, 1814, the thing came to a head. By now they'd been hammering out a draft treaty with the British, working around these last two issues. The British made a counter-proposal. Why don't we just leave those last two issues, the Mississippi and the fisheries thing, let's just leave them out of the treaty entirely. After the British went back to their hotel on that afternoon, Adams, as was customary, took his usual two-hour walk around the city to clear his head. He did that a lot, and his head was very clear. The guy was as bald as Lex Luthor. When he came back to the hotel, he sat down with Bayard and Henry Clay. Okay, let's do this. Not his exact words. We've worn the Brits down from their initial demands. Christmas is in three days. Are we going to break off negotiations now by insisting on those two issues? After all, they could settle it later with some kind of commission. Ultimately, Clay agreed. They decided to go ahead. The next day, December 23rd at noon, the five Americans showed up at the Hotel du Lion d'Or. Adams' words, quote, I informed them that we had determined to accept the proposals contained in the note we had yesterday received from them, that we had asked for the conference to make the final arrangements for the conclusion of the treaty and should be ready to sign it whenever it would be agreeable to them. The next day, December 24th, 1814, Christmas Eve. Here is what John Quincy Adams wrote in his diary on that day. I wrote letters to the Secretary of State and to my mother, and took my last letter to the Secretary of State to Mr. Smith for a duplicate to be made, engaged much of the morning in preparing the papers to be transmitted by Mr. Hughes. Mr. Clay was not ready with his copy of the treaty at three o'clock, and Mr. Hughes called upon the British plenipotentiaries to postpone the meeting until four. At that hour, we went to their house, and, after settling the protocol of yesterday's conference, Mr. Baker read one of the British copies of the treaty. Mr. Gallatin and myself had the two other copies before us, comparing them as he read. Lord Gambier, Mr. Goldborn, and Dr. Adams had our three copies, comparing them in like manner. A few mistakes and the copies were rectified, and then the six copies were signed and sealed by the three British and five American plenipotentiaries. Lord Gambier delivered to me the three British copies, and I delivered to him the three American copies of the treaty, which he said he hoped would be permanent, and I told him I hoped it would be the last treaty of peace between Great Britain and the United States. We left them at half past six o'clock. They'd done it. The treaty still had to be ratified by both governments, eventually it was in February 1815, but diplomatically speaking, the War of 1812 was over. It says in the Bible, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Adams, Clay, Lord Gambier, and the others had made peace on Christmas Eve, and Adams' prophecy turned out to be right. It was the last treaty of peace between the U.S. and Great Britain, who, 103 years later in the First World War, would formally become allies. 
On Christmas Day, Adams and the American delegates running true to form went to a card party. And that is the story of Christmas 1814. From me and my family to yours, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. If you like this podcast, please share it, tell somebody about it, mention it on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever is your thing. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash Sean Munger. Pledge an amount, even a dollar, and get access to members-only goodies that no one else gets, including video bonus lectures. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Munger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Memoirs of John Quincy Adams, edited by Charles Francis Adams, Philadelphia, J.B. Lippincott and Company, 1874, Thomas K. Hervey, The Book of Christmas, New York, George P. Putnam, 1848, and The War of 1812, A Forgotten Conflict, by Donald R. Hickey, University of Illinois Press, Chicago, 1989. Music credits. The Christmas songs in this episode are thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, also the composer of our main theme music. String Impromptu Number 1, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night and happy holidays. <laughs>